3: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the alleged chemical attack in Syria and whether the UK will join in the military action. Plus, we reflect on 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, our international affairs editor, David Gardner, deputy comment Ed Miranda Green, plus Jonathan Powell, former chief of staff in Downing Street for Tony Blair. Thank you all for joining, and if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it automatically every Saturday morning. This week has seen another horrific chemical or weapons attack in Syria. More than 40 people have been killed in a rebel-held town, and the attack has provoked more widespread condemnation from the West, with Donald Trump threatening to hit back, or maybe not, with the support of France and the UK. In Westminster, Theresa May has faced tricky questions about whether she can join this coalition without asking Parliament. David Gardner, let's begin just by describing what we know about the attack, because the Office for the Protection of Chemical Weapons is currently investigating, so we don't have firm answers yet. But what is known, as we're recording on Friday afternoon?
0: Yeah, the OPCW is actually, I think, on its way there. I'm not sure that they've arrived yet, but... These chemicals, assuming that was what was used, a mix of chlorine and uh, nerve agents, they disperse quite quickly. So it's not entirely clear that they're going to come up with an airtight answer. I think the intelligence that most countries, France, UK, US, will be looking at is in part based on where the projectiles, in this case barrel bombs, from where and how they were delivered, and the pattern of past behavior over what is now more than seven years of civil war, past behavior by the Assad regime. I don't think an awful lot of people are in much doubt that chemical weapons were used in Douma, this enclave, Last remaining rebel enclave east of Damascus last Saturday.
3: So, George Parker, this has obviously become the big political event in the UK this week because the attack happened, Boris Johnson and Theresa May condemned it and said, you know, that the the use of chemical weapons cannot go by without notice. And Donald Trump took to Twitter and warned Russia, who's obviously supporting the Assad regime, that they would be coming. And this has created something of a headache for the Prime Minister because, first of all, her own party are a bit split on this, but generally behind, you know, the international community's response, but Labour is particularly split. So what can the Prime Minister do in this situation? Well,
4: I think the first thing to say is that she has the power, using ancient prerogative rights, to send British armed forces into action and there's an expectation in London that military action could begin before Parliament returns on Monday so she is willing to use those powers um, but nevertheless at a certain point she will have to justify what she's done to the House of Commons and as you say this is an issue which divides parties and the Labour front benches uh, it's made it pretty clear that it won't support military action in the case of Syria a large number of Labour backbenchers will support it I think there are a number of Conservative MPs who are nervous about this they think there's no end strategy for all this so I think all these divisions will come out when the House of Commons gets to vote on it But I think in the meantime, Theresa May will be trying to work out, A, how this military operation will go, if it does go, and how she explains it to the House of Commons. And I think in that sense, what she needs to do is to make sure it's as narrowly focused as possible, both militarily and politically. And it's designed purely to send a message that you can't tolerate the use of chemical weapons, not as some part of a wider strategy to destabilise or bring down the Assad regime, because frankly, that is completely out of the question.
3: Because I think the concerns in the House of Commons, David, reflect concerns elsewhere, that, you know, we drop some more bombs, that sends a signal, but what happens next? Because the West has obviously had ever-changing strategies on Syria, and I think the concerns of MPs about this, that there's wider concerns about what is the end game for Syria.
0: I think one has to share those concerns. I mean, there is a an at least 20-year history, going back to Operation Desert Fox against Saddam in 1998, loosing off missiles like shots in the dark without any clear strategic aim. And I can't really see one here, particularly when the leadership is clearly problematic of Donald Trump, many of whose policy decisions seem to be driven by his ego and need to do the opposite of what Barack Obama did or did not do. Now, there doesn't seem to me to be, under this leadership, anything remotely coherent as a strategy, as an end game. I mean, in a matter of weeks, he first of all, his administration, to be fair, said that the U.S. would remain and reinforce in Syria, including through a largely Kurdish 30,000-strong border force, that the US was planning to set up. What that did was provoke the Turkish invasion of Northwest Syria, egged on by Putin, without whose permission, it was not possible. Then you have last week him saying, the US is going to leave very soon, which would hang those very same Kurds out to dry, which aside from being a big stain on the US and its credibility, very importantly, would set off a stampede but a quarter of Syria, fully a quarter of Syria, that those Kurdish forces hold. And you know, then it really gets very Hobbesian. I mean, you've got Erdogan, the, the Turkish leader, and his jihadi proxy force alongside his regular army. You've got Iran and its array of militias from both sides of the Syrian and Iraqi border. You've got ISIS seeking a comeback. You've got, you know, slightly offstage Israel seeking to thwart Iran and bombing targets inside Syria uh, regularly. And I haven't even mentioned Assad yet, whose share of the rest of the country will be partly determined by his patron Vladimir Putin.
3: Because George, obviously, the UK's policy on Syria has been all over the place the couple of years. You know, Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, has said Assad needs to go. Essentially, he said he needs to transition out. There needs to be a plan. So the UK doesn't, you know, want to get massively more involved. But essentially, Theresa May is hanging on Donald Trump's coattails. And as David was just saying, it's very hard to know what's going on here. And this is a problem for her because very early on in her premiership, she cozied up to the US president, the first foreign leader to go and visit him in the. The White House, we remember the infamous hand holding photo uh, and now she's in that same situation again where she's really waiting to see what Trump does and then the UK will follow and that will create no doubt an opportunity for Mr Corbyn and the others at home who you know, use any opportunity to attack the US President You then attack the Prime Minister.
4: Yeah, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's covered himself in glory in this episode um, it's made it absolutely clear he was not prepared to countenance military a- action. At all? E- at all, even after the use of chemical weapons against uh, women and children but I think And one thing he did get right, which is that when he said on Friday that Theresa May is now waiting for instructions from Donald Trump because that is the truth of the matter. The cabinet unanimously has agreed that the British will go in alongside the Americans but we're waiting to find out. That was on
3: Thursday at a war cabinet meeting.
4: So-called war cabinet meeting that all the cabinet came out and I'm told that Sajid Javid, the Community Secretary and Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary were particularly hawkish on this but nevertheless all the cabinet was signed up to military action to go in alongside the Americans but we're waiting to find out what the Americans are going to do and David has just set out brilliantly The complications of sending military forces into Syria. Um, One of the things that Britain and France are concerned about is the possibility that we start to target Iranian or Hezbollah assets in Syria and the danger that that could destabilise the already very fragile Iran nuclear deal. So there are so many interests at play here. It's a very difficult situation. And when you are ending up relying on reading tweets from the president when he wakes up in the morning, which is frankly what British officials tell me is guiding the British understanding of the American approach to this, it's a pretty desperate situation.
3: Because, of course, David, there is, you know, the State Department infrastructure in the US is, you know, there's still no Secretary of State since Rex Tillerson walked off the stage. And, you know, American leadership is this is what you see when you don't have that guiding force you've had for the past decades, where essentially the world is watching to see a man who doesn't seem to have a lot of consistency. And then it comes back to the Assad question that, you know, he described him as animal Assad this week. So one assumes he doesn't want to see any kind of solution to Syria with Assad still in power. So, again, where does that leave us?
0: I mean, there are three obvious things to say here. First of all, that the US has written itself out of any eventual political solution to Syria, largely. That is being handled by this curious, not very stable, but in comparison, this tripod of power between Russia, Iran and Turkey, a NATO ally which is running a parallel process to the UN and US-backed Geneva process called loosely the Astana process. But they met, for example, in a summit 10 days ago in Turkey that they are making the running on that in terms of any conceivable political future. That will have a big say in the eventual shape of what is left of Syria. But the point about the institutional vacuum in the current Trump administration. That is very scary indeed. The the point is well taken about the State Department. Um, If you had a properly functioning State Department, policy towards Syria would have treated this territory as a sort of cockpit for many good reasons, including that it borders vulnerable and ostensibly Western-aligned countries, such as Iraq, Jordan, turkey lebanon which are being further undermined by this erratic behavior from trump and the top of the state department is looking pretty empty but what you do have coming into place this week is john bolton as national security advisor now that could be very scary i mean the record of irresponsibility of john bolton on iraq on north korea On nuclear disarmament, he was in charge of disarmament at the State Department, if you recall, under George W. Bush, and was responsible in good part for ripping up the ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Now, to have somebody like that, who has openly called in various think tank and platforms and op-eds and the New York Times and so on and so forth, for the solution to Iran is to bomb it. That's pretty scary. That's a bit, you know, it's almost into Dr. Strangelove territory. Um, It's particularly when you have an administration, I I don't think one, one can mince words here, which has a serious reality problem about this area and doesn't really engage with the reality on the ground.
3: Yes, and finally on this draw, it's obviously a nice, cheerful picture David's painted there of this situation. But, you know, it does raise this very clear question of that, you know, Donald Trump likes chaotic, mad situations like to keep you guessing as you've seen several times in his action this week and for people like Mrs May and Emmanuel Macron who have much more conventional lines of thinking they're stuck in a really hard place because France and the UK are not strong enough on their own to push forward You know, a more conventional Western foreign policy and the international structures like the UN are used by Russia we saw that for the investigation to Salisbury in the Security Council motion about the chemical weapons attacks. So this seems to be an example of just how Western foreign policy is just slowly falling apart.
4: Yes. Although one caveat, of course, to that is that there was a Western response to the um, use of nerve agents in the streets of Salisbury. And and Donald Trump, actually rather against expectations in London, did act quite strongly in expelling Russian diplomats. And I think for that reason, among many others, Theresa May is bound to support Donald Trump on whatever he decides to do on Syria. But as you say... The fact that French and British foreign policy is so dependent now on the slightly erratic behaviour of the occupants of the White House, particularly when it comes to a situation, as David has described brilliantly, in Syria, which is so sensitive with so many great powers in the theatre already. It's a worrying state of affairs. And you uh, you can tell that from the very cautious language that Theresa May has been using about Syria. She's not gone down the gung-ho route. Uh, Even Boris Johnson has dialed back the rhetoric. They know this is a very serious and sensitive situation.
3: And in fact, what happened in Salisbury makes it more like that the UK has to go along with that because, you know, it was the first foreign policy success for the UK, major one in probably about five years, I think, where they got a really strong international response, support from France, support from the EU, support from the US. And, you know, so if other allies are going to then Go into this, and the UK really has no choice but to go along aside.
4: No, I was speaking to one minister last week who said basically it's unthinkable that we wouldn't be with the Americans, particularly after what happened in Salisbury. But if we're wise, we'll keep what we do in Syria to a bare minimum. You know, this is this is <laughs> this minister was pointing out that Syria used to be part of France's sphere of influence, not a British sphere of influence. That we should make it short, sharp, and as low key as possible. <laughs>
3: And finally, David, what do you think happens next? You know, so if there is some kind of big Western attack on Syria following this, what does Assad do next and where and where does that lead to this conflict going forward?
1: Well, it somewhat
0: depends on what action is taken, obviously. I mean, it seems now we have a delay. I think the expectation, certainly over the border here in Syria, was that action would be taken much sooner. But with this delay, uh, there's been ample time. For two things: for the Assad regime to, you know, secrete away its rather depleted resources, and for Russia to disentangle its force from potential targets, as was the case with the missile strike this time last year. My suspicion is that after this delay, there will be action, and it'll be something like double what happened last April. After which. It really depends on what the targets are. I mean, if they go after chemical facilities and missile bases, then that would have probably some deterrent effects, not on Assad's behaviour overall or his determination to completely wipe out all opposition, but it may determine the way and the pace at which he does it and that may create some space with that, the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks, to try and fashion eventually some sort of, not transition away from the Assad regime, but something that brings gradually an end to fighting, although that looks a very, very distant prospect at the moment, very distant indeed.
3: Tuesday marked 20 years since the Belfast Agreement was signed, better known as the Good Friday Agreement. It was a landmark political achievement that brought an end to the armed conflict in Northern Ireland. It marked the end of the decades long troubles and brought peaceful politics back to the province. There's been a lot of reflection this week about how successful the agreement was and does it still stand. Jonathan Powell, you are obviously the key negotiators behind the agreement. 20 years on, do you still count it as a success?
1: Yes, I do. And the celebrations on the 20th anniversary were actually very encouraging. Encouraging because people managed to get beyond the sort of temporary difficulties and reflect on what had been achieved. And agreements like this are not fairy stories. People don't get to live happily ever after just because an agreement has been signed. You still have political problems. You still have continuing violence and you still have sectarian differences. But what you have done is ended the war. The the troubles are over. We will not be going back to those troubles. Now, there are plenty of problems to deal with, and we reflected on those too. But the encouraging thing is that for 20 years, the Good Friday Agreement has stood Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom as a whole in good stead and stopped that violence.
3: So when it was signed, did you realise the significance of it then? Because obviously, not just within the context of Northern Ireland, but it's now looked upon as a template for resolving these sort of secretarian conflicts everywhere across the world.
1: I think I did realize the significance of Northern Ireland. It was a very emotional occasion. After all, we'd had no sleep for three days and three nights. So we were all exhausted when we tumbled onto the helicopters and took off from Stormont on Good Friday. What I don't think I had realized was quite how long it was going to take to implement. It took us nine years of hard work to get the Good Friday Agreement implemented. It wasn't done the next day. And that process was in a way necessary because You don't build an agreement just by signing a piece of paper. You build it by doing the things you've promised to do. You do it by the IRA giving up its weapons, by the unionists being prepared to share power. So I think one of the lessons I took from the Good Friday Agreement was implementation is in many ways more important even than reaching the agreement. If you think of the Oslo Accords in the Middle East, they spent a lot of time reaching those agreements. There was great celebration when they were reached, but then no one went about implementing. No one went about selling them to the people, and they collapsed into the Second Intifada. The key thing for Colombia and all the other countries that have followed down the path of the Good Friday Agreement is you've got to work on the implementation. That is absolutely crucial if the agreement's
3: going to stick. And obviously the Good Friday Agreement was followed up by the St Andrews Agreement, which restored the power-sharing government, uh, you know, 10 years later. Um, But obviously Northern Ireland at the moment doesn't have a devolved government. So within the context, you know, peaceful politics is not really functioning in Northern Ireland at the moment.
1: Yeah, there is a political crisis in Northern Ireland. The government fell over 15 months ago, and it hasn't been possible to restore it. And part of the trouble, of course, is that the current British government depends on the support of 10 DUP MPs to stay in power in Westminster. And that is a problem, because at least since 1990, the British government has tried to be neutral in Northern Ireland. We said that whatever unionists and Republicans and nationalists can live with, we can live with now the government actually depends on one of the parties and therefore it's difficult for them to genuinely be impartial that's a problem i was encouraged by the celebrations this week on uh, the anniversary of the good friday agreement peter robinson who was on a panel i chaired was very clear with his successor and in the, in the, on the floor below us um uh, that it is possible for the dup to get the institutions back up and running and jerry adams made similar comments uh, and the panel. So I do think there's a possibility of getting the institutions up and running again. I do think the new generation of politicians can probably make the compromises that their forebears did. When you think about it, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness were integral to the Troubles themselves, and yet they were able to work together. It must be possible for a new generation, who are not directly involved in the Troubles, to do the same thing.
3: Miranda Green reflecting obviously on this agreement here as Jonathan was saying it does come at a slightly tricky time at which obviously we haven't seen a return of violence to the province but there are a lot of questions given Brexit and given the fact that the DUP and Sinn Féin are, you know, are still quite far apart at the moment.
2: Yes that's right I- and I think one of the most depressing things, uh, certainly for me, has been in the recent weeks seeing how little the rest of the British public seem to care about this Northern Irish question, actually. And obviously, whether you can prevent there being any sort of border between the Republic and the North is absolutely crucial for the continuing prosperity and development of a un- unified society in Northern Ireland after Brexit. But when you sort of poll the British public about this, it's really, really right at the bottom of their priorities about the Brexit process. And when you think of what's at stake in Northern Ireland, that's rather lowering. And one thing I thought watching the celebrations marking the anniversary this week was just the enormous generational disconnect, actually. I mean, Jonathan was talking about what he hopes for in the fact that there's a new generation of people in Northern Ireland who perhaps can sort out uh, the local difficulties there, as it were, in Stormont. But I think on on a wider canvas, the generational change to British people who don't remember the Troubles at all and don't remember what's at stake is actually extremely worrying. Yes,
3: Jonathan, that is a concern. You know, I actually remember when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, I'm sorry to say, I was in primary school and I remember my <laughs> teacher coming in and telling us this thing had been signed and it was a huge deal and no one really took much about it, you know. But for my generation, as Miranda was saying, there's a big indifference towards Northern Ireland and that does seem pretty problematic for the future.
1: I don't think it's only your generation, to be honest. I mean, one of the great tragedies, really, of Northern Ireland is how little people in Britain have cared about Northern Ireland. I knew almost nothing about Northern Ireland before I was asked to deal with it at the embassy in Washington and visited the province. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, we, um, I remember talking to Hayden Phillips, who was a private secretary to the Home Secretary at the time, and him saying, used to get letters in about Northern Ireland and a reply saying, it's nothing to do with the British government, communicate with the unionist government in Stormont." So there's a long history of Britain being indifferent to the situation in Northern Ireland. I don't think that's anything new. And, of course, part of the point of the Good Friday Agreement was to take Northern Ireland off the headlines to make it uh, really a local matter rather than a a national matter. And there's certainly no political credit in solving Northern Ireland. You know, Tony Blair got no political credit. John Major got no political credit for trying. So I'm not too surprised. But I do think Brexit is a very big threat to the Good Friday Agreement.
3: Yes, and this is obviously something you've written about um, for the FT as well. And, you know, we're at this stage in the Brexit process where Northern Ireland is probably the biggest sticking point to getting a withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU. And there's a lot of talk in Westminster about some kind of fudge about the situation there. But again, it's this indifference that, you know, if you say to British public, would you prefer, you know, a soft border in Ireland or no Brexit? Then say, oh, well, you know, we'd rather have Brexit.
1: Well, possibly, but uh, that isn't actually the point because Theresa May, in her Article 50 letter, made clear the paramountcy of the Good Friday Agreement. Since then, she's been completely solid in saying that she's not going to have a hard border. She's not going to allow a hard border. She's not going to allow the EU or the Republic of Ireland to build a hard border. Uh, she wrote, signed an agreement in December saying that. So it is clear the British government is committed to stopping a hard border, and they're committed to that for a very good reason, putting in a hard border. In other words, changing the border that exists in any way would undermine the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement was about identity. It was about people being able to live in Northern Ireland and feel Irish, have Irish passports, feel British if they wanted to, or feel both. As soon as you put that hard border back in, the concrete blocks on the small roads, the checkpoints on the big roads, then that identity question is reopened and the Good Friday Agreement is undermined. It doesn't mean you go back to violence straight away, but it does mean in the longer term to see the thing disintegrate politically. That is a real threat. It must be stopped. The problem they have is that in October they have to sign a legal agreement. That legal agreement has to provide for how a hard border can be avoided. And it seems to me almost inconceivable you can avoid it unless the United Kingdom as a whole, or at least Northern Ireland, remains in the customs union, and you find solutions to the regulatory issues in the single market, because it's not just the customs union. There's also the question of phytosanitary standards and agricultural standards and so on. So Theresa May faces a real challenge because in October there has to be a legally binding agreement. If she can't come up with a a different solution, the solution will have to be that. And that, of course, will be very, very unpopular with her Brexiteers.
2: It's fascinating. And those uh, difficulties with the negotiation, the side, I do think there's a wider threat as well, actually, to the United Kingdom and what we've achieved in the United Kingdom. I mean, Jonathan referred to this extraordinary thing in the Good Friday Agreement where citizens can choose to be Irish, British or both. This idea of a sort of dual identity is a really fantastic sort of modern innovation. And it's one of the things that people have looked to a lot this week when they're sort of reflecting on the, on that historic achievement. But of course, in the UK, we've always had that as well. You know, people could be English and British, Scottish and British, Northern Irish and British and Actually, this sort of cultural moment of Brexit, where people seem to be wanting to reassert a much narrower sense of identity and where you can belong. Actually, sort of through remembering what was achieved in the Good Friday Agreement, it should make us realise that that's kind of a moment as well. And, you know, clearly the threat of Scotland voting for independence has receded at the moment, but it could come back again. Um, And so Brexit, I think, is sort of leading all sorts of things to do with belonging in the UK to bubble up to the surface in a way that feels quite dangerous.
3: Yes, and I think obviously if you take the the British, the Irish or both, you could easily reflect that as well to British, European or both as well. So exactly,
2: think- which people don't seem to want here anymore. That's the thing.
3: Yes, exactly. Well, some people. Some
2: people, uh, we should say all, half the people, all, yes, uh, half, yes, uh, half, yes the people.
3: half the people. do
1: want to do that. And in Northern Ireland, it's more than half the people. It's 56% who voted remain, which is much bigger than the Catholic population of Northern Ireland. So I think we have to be careful in making too many Uh, generalisations from what people decided in that referendum. This is where a relatively small group of people who really feel strongly about this are leading the rest of the country, possibly against their
3: will. And finally, Jonathan, why do you think that Tony Blair didn't get you know as you said a lot of credit for this because you were obviously his chief of staff at the time and there's been a lot of people saying a lot of labor mps who are sort of distracting from that otherwise by looking back to this huge achievement of the first labor government and it is amazing how much has been overshadowed by you know iraq and a lot of other legacies of tony blair's government do you think in the longer term history books people look back actually you know what that was a really great thing
1: yes i, think I would distinguish between political credit and historical credit Generally speaking, what you tend to, when prime ministers are gone, you tend to look at the last thing they did. The, as the Iraq War was in the, the tail end of the Tony Blair administration, of course, that's what people are, are looking at. When people come to write history in 30, 40, or 50 years' time, I think it will be a bit different. there will be a more balanced history. It will include things like Kosovo, it will include the advances made in education, and it will include Northern Ireland. And I think Northern Ireland was a really big change in, uh, in Britain in our attitude for the reasons Miranda gives as well as for the actual reasons of peace in Northern Ireland. And I think those things will stick too. I think the Good Friday Agreement will be still in place in 20 years' time. It will still be strong, and I hope we'll find some way around this problem of the hard border, although I suspect it's going to involve us having to stay in the customs union for the foreseeable future.
2: I would agree with all of that, but also I think something that's so fascinating about politics is how difficult it is to remember a political atmosphere once it has passed. And in those early years of the Blair government, there was this extraordinary sense of possibility. And I don't know if Jonathan would agree with me. I mean, I was working for Paddy Ashdown at the time, different party, but the two politicians were very close. And there was this feeling that changes could be made, that the country could be transformed. And so solving this knotty, difficult, violent problem of Northern Ireland was actually part of a feeling of optimism. But people don't remember that part of the Blair era.
3: Jonathan?
1: Well, I, must say, I, re- I remember it quite well. <laughs> I remember that morning in May when uh, the election was won and we went into to office very well indeed. It was a beautiful, sunny morning. Um, it, was, um, it did feel like a new birth for the whole country, I think. And actually one of the things we, we lost out on, uh, Miranda was referring to, is there was a real possibility at that stage of progressive forces and politics coming together of actually the Dems and Labour being able to work together. We managed to fluff it on... the uh, on that occasion in 1997 <laughs> and subsequently in looking at what politics is now, it's a real thing that the progressive Centre didn't manage to come together at that stage and provide something we could build on now when we're faced by two very, very extreme parties.
3: Well, the much-rumored new centrist party can come together and finally complete that dream. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Miranda, David and Jonathan Powell for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: The inexorable rise of China the changing nature of work, the future of liberal capitalism, the power of Silicon Valley, the world of artificial
1: intelligence.
0: Join Gideon Rackman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruhar, and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant
4: questions of our age in a new podcast,
0: The FT Big Picture, launching on April the 16th. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com
1: podcasts.